There are three transformational developments in American history that are most responsible for the baby boomer. First, the Second World War had decimated major manufacturing across the old world. This left a geographically isolated U.S. with a market advantage. A booming economy and funds for the GI Bill allowed returning veterans to receive higher education and acquire homes, both of which are historically the largest determinants of generational wealth. Increased national wealth also meant increased national spending on infrastructure. In 1956, the United States began construction of its interstate highway system, the second transforming development. While white Americans were the principal beneficiaries of the new middle class, minorities began, against all odds, to rise up the economic ladder. Using the newly built highways and their newly acquired funds, white Americans bought cars and headed away from urban centers and their manufacturing jobs. Instead, they settled in heavily redlined and segregated communities called the suburbs, willing to commute to their jobs. greatest generation moved their post-war families into housing developments and newly formed neighborhoods of homogenized whiteness. Do you know the stereotype of the cookie-cutter mid-century ranch neighborhoods where men in suits get in identical Chevys all at the same time and back out of their driveways as we watch the pantomime from Bird's Eye? That's what I'm referring to. This imagery has been dissected to death by the children of those men and their wives, and it turns out that Automated appliances, stiff drinks, green grass, and living 30 miles from the nearest minority doesn't heal a nation recovering from two world wars, a plague, and an economic collapse. You cannot flee from your past and leave it behind in the old world or the old neighborhood. Within nearly every white picket fence and single-story home were 2.5 kids. Kids who sat down in front of the third and perhaps most transformational piece of technology since the printing press the television. Come with me, and I'll show you what every one of you can do single-handed. Here, you can tune in this wonderful new Westinghouse television set with just one hand like this, because it has the sensational new Westinghouse single dial control. There's no more fussing with several dials. You just turn this one dial, and you're tuned in perfectly. Clunky tube television struggling to capture the signal of all four channels during limited broadcast time hardly feels revolutionary now. TV was the first force outside the house of worship to provide a lectionary for the nation. It was a means to make up the minds of millions of people at once. Its presence in the American home reshaped the way we ate, the way we relaxed, the way we gathered, and just about every other way we lived. That is why television was denounced and decried often and loudly as the new opiate for the masses, especially the children. By 1962, 90% of all American homes had at least one television. Within a decade, that number would be 97%. The first station to broadcast 24 hours a day was Ted Turner's TBS in the 1970s. The first 24-hour news channel was Ted Turner's CNN in 1980. In both instances, he was thought a fool. 
Broadcast TV would sign on and sign off in many places across the country until the mid-90s. But back in 1962, on any given Friday night, the majority of American household television sets were tuned into CBS. At 10 p.m., one would find an anthology series written or inspired by some of the great genre writers of the 20th century. The Twilight Zone was in its third season and aired an adaptation of Richard Matheson's Little Girl Lost. The short story was inspired by a real-life incident where Matheson's daughter was screaming for help in the house while he was unable to locate her. His panic gave way to an idea. What if a door to another dimension was inside your house? What if the other side resided smack dab in suburbia and just beyond your newly constructed walls, your helpless child was in limbo? Mac, bring her out. Daddy, where are you? We're here, baby. We're here. We're right here. <laughs> I can't see you. Mac, bring her out. What does he do it? No. Tina. Tina, take my hand. Crystal. My hand, honey. Take a hold of it. Wartime Here. breeds conformist and obedient patriots. Here. The Golden Generation had fought an actual war against incarnate evil and were told they fought for country, for good, and for God. Their duty was to raise well-mannered children who would enter the workforce fearing God and loving country. Transformational forces rarely ceased with convenience and comfort, though, and so boomers became disenchanted with conformist suburban culture, mainline Protestant religion, and rigid social mores. The plight of African Americans and the emergence of the Civil Rights Movement stoked many white teens to question the great American myth. The rest of the decade led to the assassination of the Kennedys, Dr. King, the failures of Vietnam, shown nightly on TV, and the collapse of the pacifist hippie movement. By the 1970s, the idealistic children of the 60s became decadent and cynical. This was reflected in the music and art of the decade. At what other time could a low-budget movie about a never-was-boxer just trying to survive his fight be seen as inspirational, let alone win Best Picture? When else could a comedy concerning young friendship on the last night of summer in 1962 end with being killed in Vietnam as a postscript? How about a summer film about a family vacation at the beach where free spirits and young boys get shredded by unstoppable nature? When else could a horror film centered around an unbelieving and feckless church in the face of evil consuming the young and innocent? A movie called The Exorcist, where the exorcist dies and the remaining priest is a functional atheist who surrenders to a demon before killing himself. When psychedelics, protesting pacifism, and eastern gurus didn't work for the boomers, they returned to what America offered their parents, albeit reimagined. Many boomers left mushrooms for corporate boardrooms and went from protesting for peace to protesting against abortion. They left their Indian gurus to form the very first megachurches. The collective trauma of recessions, gas shortages, Vietnam, assassinations, the Cold War was all dulled again by old medicines in the form of new suburban construction, easier access to consumer credit, and color television in every room. The transformation from baby boomers to restless hippies to Reagan yuppies was complete. It was now the 80s.
By the early 80s, the baby boomers were longing for the innocence of the 50s. This is evident in the powerful appeals of Reagan and Jerry Falwell, among others. They confuse the innocence of their youth with the 50s social order and have been stuck in that loop ever since. The nihilism of 70s new cinema began losing steam around the release of George Lucas' Star Wars in 1977. Another young director who made his name directing Columbo in a TV movie called Duel then made the aforementioned Kid Killing Shark movie. The two would team up in an homage to the adventure serials of their youth. They combined the most modern of special effects and spectacular action choreography to reimagine what a hero picture could be. Lucas and Spielberg tapped into the memories of their generation, and the results were massive box office hits and a good amount of critical praise. Tapping into nostalgia can be a powerful type of alchemy. You take the unreliable feelings of the past and transmute them into a new context. The funny thing about the past is that you cannot leave it behind, not really. Houses full of the latest consumer goods and expensive electronics can't keep the horrors of yesterday quelled. Trauma occurs and reoccurs. The past wants to dig itself up, and when it does, we do not get to dictate where it emerges. America could stretch her highways from coast to coast and build her homes in barren valleys, but horror will follow. You can keep your life and home filled with busyness and noise from 27-inch color TVs, but you cannot numb out or drown out the truth. You will become your parents, and your children will be devoured by your coping mechanisms. Missing. One frightened little girl. Name, Carol Ann Freely. Description, six years of age. Average height and build, blonde hair, quite pretty. Last seen being tucked in bed by her mother a few hours ago. Last heard, I, there's the rub, as Hamlet put it, for Carol Ann Freeling can be heard quite clearly, despite the rather curious fact that she can't be seen at all. Present location, let's say for the moment, in the television. <laughs> Stephen Freeling is a successful real estate agent selling prefab homes to middle-class whites looking to take flight even further away. Diane Freeling is an attractive stay-at-home mom trying to hold on to her youthful open-mindedness while raising three kids. After the kids have been put to bed, we see Stephen and Diane smoking weed and waxing nostalgic for their hippie youth while the TV plays nothing in particular and Stephen reads a book on Reagan. Every square inch of the Freeling home is filled with things. These people are living the American dream, which is quick to become a nightmare. Dana Freeling is the eldest daughter, and given little clues, we can deduce that she came along when Steve and Diane were quite young. Dana is 16 in 1982, which means she was born somewhere around 1966, two years after The Twilight Zone was canceled and two years after Spielberg began working in the script department of Universal the very studio that barred him from directing Poltergeist himself. The paternal Freelings are people who had to leave behind their youth in order to provide for their surprised child and the two more that they likely planned. There is subtext in the way Diane and Stephen dote over their youngest children while Dana is left fending for herself, always at a friend's house and never quite part of the picture-perfect family. Angsty teen, certainly part of it. But what if her angst and Diane's separation are rooted in something less hormonal. A strength of this film is how much is layered in 
but how little is said about it directly. You know the story of Poltergeist, if buying nothing else than osmosis. It's a ghost story, not set in spooky English manners, but right in the living room of America. The creature comforts of the aspirational middle class literally turning on the family. The toy box animates to kill the son while he sleeps in a Star Wars sheeted bed. The swimming pool unearths the dead and buried, a bird in a weed box and corpses in caskets, and then the swimming pool tries to drown the mother. The television noise becomes a door to limbo. We're home, baby, we're home. Can you find me? Can you find a way home to us, baby? Late in the film, Diane looks at the house that tried to kill her family and says, We worked so hard for this. Even after her possessions became possessed, she still longs for material comforts. They worked for it. They earned it. America told them so. As a literal ghost story, it is, of course, fantastic, but there is more at work here than special effects and parapsychology. This screenplay is layered with the psyche of a 36-year-old man processing the horrors of the first half of the 20th century and the lies we tell to keep those horrors at bay. Spielberg is amalgamating his influences, like The Twilight Zone, his personal past and his generational context into what was, at the time, his present. His screenplay serves as a medium to the spirits of baby boomer adolescents and the terror of the fears for their children. They've given them everything they never had, and now those things have them and won't give them back. Mostly teenagers have. So many, in fact, that psychologists are beginning to worry that some youths are becoming spaced out on the space games. You can't get hooked on it. Are you? Yeah. <laughs> it keeps on making you play the game. Once you start to play it for a while, it keep, you keep on playing it. Any normal person would want to beat the machine. <laughs> and you come back? Oh, sure. Again? Oh, sure. <laughs> Again? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Many cities have reacted by making the arcades off-limits to all... Artists draw from the known parts of their memories, but also from the unknowable cloud of the unconscious mind. At times, the act of creation feels like a possession or a communion with spirits. Ironically, spirits were in revival in the 1970s and early 80s. Parapsychology and associated phenomena had left the 19th century parlor and were dedicated departments in major academic institutions. Researchers searched for scientific explanations for supposed supernatural experiences, which were on the uptick. Science requires measurement. If there were a physical, scientific explanation for supposed hauntings, there must be a way to measure them. These ideas would later be debunked, but not by 1982. Scientists studying the spiritual and unusual became a popular trope throughout the decade. And Poltergeist were offered three doctors from a local university. Dr. Martha Lesh is a psychologist played by the incredible Beatrice Strait. Her partners are Dr. Marty Casey and Dr. Ryan Mitchell. The Freelings turned the trio after the disappearance of their daughter into the fourth dimension. As much as Twilight Zone clearly influenced Spielberg, I can't help but think this trio and a very familiar line from Diane served as inspiration for a similar movie 
written just one year later in 1983. Stephen, we're going to keep this thing in the family, Diane. In the morning, I'm going to call somebody in. Diane. Oh yeah? Who, for instance? I already looked in the yellow pages. Furniture movers we got. Strange phenomena? There's no listing. Are you troubled by strange noises in the middle of the night? Do you experience feelings of dread in your basement or attic? Have you or any of your family ever seen a spook, specter, or ghost? If the answer is yes, then don't wait another minute. Pick up your phone and call the professionals. Go Ghostbusters! Our courteous and efficient staff is on call 24 hours a day to serve all your supernatural elimination needs. We're ready to believe you! I've heard it said that all good screenplays either ask or answer a question. Ghostbusters, penned by Harold Ramis, Ivan Reitman from a Dan Aykroyd concept, during a pot-hazed vacation at Martha's Vineyard, answers Diane Freeling's question in nearly the same comically sarcastic way she asked it. If you have a strange phenomena in the house, who you gonna call? Ramus and Reitman thought it would be hilarious if you actually could flip past furniture movers in the yellow pages to find supernatural exterminators. They were right. They also knew that the concept only works if the ghosts are mostly scary, just like they were in Poltergeist. Now, you may feel that I'm drawing a connection where it doesn't exist, but compare how each haunting begins with the television. It manifests in the kitchen and ends with the closing of an interdimensional portal. Never mind that both trios work in basically the same office in the basement of a campus. Go ahead, compare them. Ghostbusters could reuse certain elements of Poltergeist because they were so credible in Poltergeist. The more literal connection between the two films is Richard Edlund. Edlin worked for the Lucas-based ILM on Star Wars and Poltergeist, and he left ILM to form Boss Films due in part to Ghostbusters. The ghost design and filmmaking techniques are nearly identical. The apparitions, skeletons, and beasts of Cuesta Verde would fit right in with the four-fold cross-rip in New York. Poltergeist captures a nursery rhyme-like innocence undercut with malevolence. You feel the love of family and home, innocence of Carol Ann, and lost spirits looking for the light and the hidden beast which seeks to consume Carol Ann and destroy the nuclear family. I recently saw the 4K release of Poltergeist in theaters. I had intended for this to be a revival year, but here we are. At roughly Spielberg's age, when he made Poltergeist, I understand the mindset. We start to look backward in order to reinterpret our experiences and provide context for our present anxieties and future worries. We return to those most formational forces in our earliest selves. I returned to Poltergeist on a big screen to better understand it, even as Spielberg wrote it to better understand the fiction and fear that influenced him. This film went on to influence, even subconsciously, the most formative film of my life, which in turn influenced me, consciously and unconsciously. Poltergeist has weight to it. The world it makes feels real in the way that relationships and domestic dynamics play out and are not explained. In life, we relate to each other. In movies, people relate at each other. It works oftentimes because the movies are meant to show what we know but can't or won't articulate. But this film reserves all of the heady dialogue for the other side. Ackroyd-esque technobabble and spiritualism. It feels credible because most of it comes out of the mouth of Beatrice Strait, who delivers a tear-inducing monologue for mere exposition. Most scripts were meant for talent and elocution like hers. The rest is given to Zelda Rubinstein, a return of some levity when the movie needs it most, but still a serious player in a life-and-death situation. Now clear your mind. It knows what scares you. It has from the very beginning. Don't give it any help. It knows too much already. 
On the big screen, the movie is engaging, funny, tight, natural, scary, and emotional. We feel everything the movie wants us to feel, and we do not want the experience to end, even if the experience is terror. It's a rare thing for a movie to have you in its grips, and when it does, you can feel it. I've watched this movie my entire life. I know it. I liked it. I had not actually seen it until I saw it in all of its glory, remastered, shot on a huge screen. Contemporary critics said it wasn't scary and was just another special effects demo reel. In the five years since Star Wars, the critics were already over the lights and the magic. Well, 40 years later, the magic is still there. And it's in the substance. It's in the characters and the ideas at work behind the special effects. It's in the ideas lifted from Richard Matheson. It's in the heavy-handed influence of Spielberg. And it's in the marvelous direction of Toby Hooper. Poltergeist is a film with the depth of a novel, inspired by a short story adapted for television. But it stands to reason that television might not be the best medium for it. I was once a child, afraid of the dark closet and the thunderstorms outside. Now, I am a man afraid of losing the ones he loves to the other side. And soon, I will be a man afraid of getting lost on my way to the light. I'm afraid of what youth I've lost and afraid of losing what I've worked for. We write about hauntings because we are all haunted by our past. We are possessed by what we do to escape it, and we are tormented by the beast of our own mortality. I would be remiss if I didn't add that Spielberg still gives us a dour ending. The family escapes with only their lives. All material possessions were lost, not unlike death. The family is reduced to a motel, left with nothing but the love that saved them. They are free from the lie of the American dream and have all that matters, yet they are still haunted. Mm-hmm.